It's Sunday afternoon, and here at the Heritage Radio Network, that means it's time to talk cheese on Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, uh, and our show today is being engineered by Nat Wiener and produced by Jack Inslee. Uh, Heritage Radio is located in the backyard of Roberta's, the best pizza and fried chicken in town, at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, And so, actually, today, as a special guest, I have none other than my dad, Bill Saxelby, on as my my co-host. Thanks for coming on. I'm a proud dad. I'm thrilled to be here. And he also is responsible for picking the theme music, which today is um, way funkier than usual and awesome. Um, So today is, this week is the second week of an ongoing discussion about raw milk. Uh, Joining us today on the show as our guest is Claudia Keel, a traditional herbalist and raw milk advocate. Thank you for joining us, Claudia. Thank you. Um, And so, you know, Sly was such a big, uh, you know, a big lead into the show. And now we're going to get really dorky and talk about pasteurization and and raw milk and stuff like that. But um, I just wanted to give our listeners a very kind of brief... um, history about raw milk and uh, how we kind of moved from drinking raw milk to drinking pasteurized milk before we could really get into a discussion uh, with Claudia. Um, So basically, raw milk has been drunk since the beginning of time. Everybody, you know, there was no such thing as pasteurization until the mid-1800s. Um, and so basically what happened is as people began to move to cities in, during the Industrial Revolution um, in the 1800s, they wanted to keep drinking fluid milk uh, because it had been a part of their diets. It was a traditional food. Um, but milk, being a perishable product, couldn't really be transported from the country to the city without spoiling. So that meant that people moved cows into the big cities. And... These cows ranged from being backyard cows, which, you know, didn't, didn't pose as big of a problem because it's one person milking one cow. They're kind of responsible for the whole process. Uh, but not everybody could have a backyard cow. And so there were also sort of bigger urban dairies. And the conditions weren't quite as good in these big urban dairies um, because the cows didn't have access to grass. Uh, they weren't outside. Um, generally, the dairies were connected to a distillery or a brewery. And so the cows were eating the spent grain from uh, this, these different industrial processes. And the result of the cows eating those things and being cramped in such close quarters led to a lot of milk-borne illness. Um, typhoid, I think, was a big one. Tuberculosis was another. And so in cities, um, children especially, but many other people, were getting sick on what was referred to as swill milk, which was being produced at these uh, at these urban dairies. So, enter pasteurization as kind of a, a cure all, but also kind of a cover up for you know what to begin with was not a sustainable agricultural practice. Um, and this pasteurization started with um, uh, it started in big cities. I think Chicago was the first to uh, require pasteurization, but then New York followed in a lot of other big cities. And, you know, before you knew it, pasteurization was required by pretty much everybody. And there was some resistance at first. There was a certified milk movement and other movements that were trying to bridge that gap between rural and urban. And um, 
make farms accountable for producing clean milk and then getting that into the cities. But it was really just too much work in the end for everyone to to um, be able to follow through with all the different parts of the process of certifying that milk and then getting it into the city. So pasteurization being the easiest road, um, it became just the commonplace thing to do. And uh, even though there was some resistance in the beginning, uh, pasteurization, you know, as the generations went by, became the norm. And also as more people continued to move to cities, farmers were all producing milk for those urban markets. And if those urban markets required pasteurization, then they had to comply. So now we live in a world where pasteurized milk is the norm and raw milk is um, definitely on the wacky end of the spectrum. But um, Claudia, um, I hope, can shed a little bit of light on the, uh, on the benefits of raw milk and uh, maybe tie it in with uh, a little bit of her work. So Claudia, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about what you do as an herbalist and nutritionist. So basically, I, um, as I were, as she said, I work as an herbalist. And I see pe- people come to an herbalist generally for a lot of ailments that weren't effectively dealt with with conventional medicine. So I'll deal with things from anything from mild digestive ailments or to Lyme's disease, to Crohn's disease, to more serious life-threatening ailments. But one of the things I started to discover, in addition to giving herbs, the most of the you know, the, the basis for which people um, are the, are the ailments today is has a lot to do with food, either as a direct cause or as a trigger. Mm. So in my practice, I started to really focus on food and consider what good food was and what people needed to have to feel healthy. And how did you come to um, f- to doing this work in the first place? What inspired you to become uh, an herbalist? Hmm. Well, I didn't grow up knowing that you could become an herbalist. <laughs> it's not a traditional... It's, you so can't I, major in it in most colleges, I'm sure. No, it wasn't something I played with in dolls and tried to... But, <laughs> but um, increasingly, um, I came across people that... I, 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 I became involved with, the, with growing food. And part of growing food, I started learning about some herbs. It was still something very much on the fringe. And I basically thought I should learn about growing some, you know, growing herbs. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and so, and then I thought I should learn about using herbs. And from there, I was very lucky. I met um, a lot of amazing master herbalists who I took apprenticeships from. And without the intention of being an herbalist, um, I started to share what I had learned and people started to come with me. And so eventually I opened up my own, you know, practice. And so how long have you had your practice now? I, about 10 years. Wow. I, I have in Union Square. Um, is where my office is, and in New York, it's wonderful to work because there's such a full diversity of people coming to me from all walks of life. How many patients do you uh, do treat? Is there sort of a, a limit to the amount of people that you can consult with, or um... well, the one thing that an herbalist offers that conventional medicine doesn't is that we really do give long consultations because it's not just looking at a particular illness, but it's looking at the whole body and the patterns of illness within the body or patterns of balance. So in doing a consultation, not only do I want to hear about what hurts them, I want to hear about many other things, their health history and the food that they eat. And so um, so I do spend an hour to an hour and a half 
So it's not like I see people every 10, 15 minutes like you do in a lot of doctor's office today. Claudia, what, what motivates someone to come to an herbalist? The most common motiv- motivation today is when they're sick and conventional medicine hasn't helped. So, you know, in traditional societies, it's it's a first line to start seeking out herbs to for health and wellness. But um, today, people don't think about that so often. And so when they're really sick, they come to an herbalist because they don't know, they're reaching out for straws. Um, also, I in New York, it's really nice because there's many traditional people from other cultures that are used to going to herbalists. So they'll seek out an herbalist because, you know, that because that's what they knew helped them. And so... So I have that as well. And so can you tell us a little bit? I know there's also, you don't want to obviously breach confidentiality, yeah. but we were talking um, a little bit before the show started about sort of the different groups of people that come to you and how sometimes it's surprising. Can you tell us um, some of the more, I don't know, some of the range of people who come to, to see you and seek your consultation? Yeah, I mean, from all, you know, um, as I said, all kinds of communities from different cultures, um, Somehow a lot of Latin American, I have a lot of, because they tend to tell each other about who the good herbalist is around. <laughs> but um, <laughs> That network of community, that's important. Which, yeah, so um, it's really by word of mouth because I don't have a website and I don't do a lot to, I don't do anything to advertise myself. So the good thing that I feel about being an herbalist in my practice is that people come to me because they know that somebody else who's been helped but with herbs and traditional medicine interesting and so and you i remember you mentioned something about bodybuilders well bodybuilders um i may see you know but um and they might have different things but bodybuilders are actually seeking out raw dairy i was talking about that's what it was yeah Yeah, bodybuilders (laughs) sorry bodybuilders are not necessarily into herbalist herbalists but they're into raw dairy (laughs) they find that that really more than anything else it's like um helps build up their muscles and their health and in a good way so so can you tell us a little bit about how you started to integrate or incorporate the idea of raw milk into your um, healing practices? Yeah, so it was an evolution on some level and then just a big jump on another level. But basically, um, as I sort of alluded to, I was involved with growing food and farms. And then I started to understand that a healthy farm was a whole integrated system with animals and cows, especially what is sort of really made well-known in the biodynamic system of farming. And so I started to, through those farms, find out about raw dairy and other kinds. And then in just seeking about um, what healthy foods are, I also came across the book by Weston Price. It's an older book from the 1930s called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And first I didn't buy it. I was just in a bookstore just spending 45 minutes looking at the pictures. But You came I, across it just kind of randomly or had you heard of Weston Price before? No, I hadn't heard of him. I found it in a used bookstore and the book sort of caught my eye. And I remember sitting down for like 45 minutes and just looking at all the pictures. This is back in like 97 or 98. Okay. And... What one of the things that 
is so dramatic about the books is that he studied traditional diets, traditional peoples and their diets around the world. And he was able to photograph it in the 1930s. So he studied not only the health and the beautiful bone structure of traditional peoples, but he also studied their community nearby that were exposed to what he called the displacing foods of modern commerce. And what happened in one generation with those communities that the whole bone structure and health deteriorated in a radical way that was just demonstrated not only by his studies, but just by the pictures. And so he was really, uh, you know, people always say the right place at the right time, but that's really when industrial food was beginning to become more available to more people on a larger scale across the world. And so for him to be able to observe that um, and all these indigenous peoples must have been, that's that's very impressive. Yeah, it was a threshold time in history that you can, one person could go to many places and study many different peoples, but also that it was just at this time where things were radically changing and these communities that he studied don't exist anymore. Wow. So. And Weston Price, what he was a dentist, right? He was a dentist, and in his practice, he was a well-known des- dentist and researcher, and he started to notice more and more that the younger generation, which then was the 1930s, he noticed they had narrowing of a palate and a lot more cavities, where the older generation had very few problems. And he felt early on that it was due to food. And so he wanted to understand what good food was. And he had read his um, nephew worked for the National Geographic. Mm. And one of the things in the early, you know, the pictures of the National Geographic is that they talked about these traditional peoples with these beautiful pearly white teeth. Sure. So he thought he should go out and try to find these peoples and see what they ate. Very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so now Weston Price, um, now there is, in fact, a Weston Price Foundation, which advocates for foods like this. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about about that? Yes. So um, in 1999, it was formed somewhat recently. Wow. I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah. Um, Sally Fallon and others were the, um, they started this foundation. And they also, and basically it's about traditional foods and helping people to understand what what that is and how to have access to it. And the nice thing about the foundation is that they really, seek out to be decentralized and have this um, many, many chapters all around that people helping people in their local communities have access to traditional foods. That's so. that's very, very fascinating. Well, I think we have to take a quick break now. Mm-hmm. But when we come back from the break, I would love to um, pick up with uh, the talk about traditional foods and raw milk as a traditional food and how yeah. that is being thankfully reintroduced into people's diets even here in New York City. So we'll <laughs> okay. be back after a quick break. Oh, you love Norman Bates, my producer slam, my floor was like, bam, t- 
Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Our show today has been sponsored by Hearst Ranch. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host today is my dad, Bill Saxelby. And we're here with uh, Claudia Keel talking about raw milk. Um, so something, I don't know, that just was, was very funny and I feel like I have to make a comment on too, <laughs> is that when I was first getting interested in all this kind of um, sustainable agriculture and, and learning what real food was, I also stumbled across a book um, in this little store in my town called the Blue Smock Shop. <laughs> um, and I was just at home for like Christmas break or something and I don't even know why I pulled this book off the shelf, but it was called The Taste of America and it was written by Karen Hess, mm-hmm. um, whose husband William used to be the food critic at the New York Times for many years back in the 60s and they had written this book about sort of the um, the, you know the sort of sorry state that our food system was in even back then and um, how we had gone from having a culture or for America having a real food tradition you know when people first had come here and were really struggling to get by with their limited resources um, how that was a very rich food tradition and then what we see today which is more um you know supermarket processed food and how interesting that was um so yeah sometimes that that random book at the at the store can spark a whole line of thought um but i was also very interested we were talking before about how you would look at things as a whole whether it's someone's body and how their um health is um you know affected by different things or a farm and how you know the farm is kind of a whole organism between the plants and the animals that live there and the weather and all these things um back uh when i had david gumpert on the show last week we were talking about um the sort of scientific climate of the late 1800s and how there was louis pasteur on one end of the, one end of the spectrum who had demonstrated this tremendous um you know, kind of powerful ability to not only, uh, you know, kill off harmful microbes with pasteurization, but also had done a lot with um, vaccination and how to um, prevent people from having these serious illnesses. And working alongside him at the same time were a couple of other French scientists and Russian scientists who were more interested in this thing that they called the milieu interior, which was kind of meant exactly what you're talking about, the inner environment and how that sets people up for healthy you know life and um so it seems that people are maybe moving more towards that that idea now especially those that are coming to seek you out in your services yeah so another term used at that time is called the terrain mm. which you know for a farmer understand that you know you need healthy organisms in your soil and if you have sterile soil that will call a lot of other weeds and other things that might not be so great for gardening and the same kind of thing for the body um, the body's not sterile. And when you think of, you know, even though we do know that germs exist and they can be very harmful, some people can be exposed to the flu, as we're talking about so much today, and not be sick, and another person can get very sick. Mm-hmm. And what is the reason behind that? You know, basically what traditional medicine, you know, many different paradigms throughout the world, the, the one common thing is that your terrain, your Basically, your interior environment, the balance of health and well-being in your body, you know, makes you open or closed to getting a lot of ailments, you know, so. 
That's I think um, that that's very fascinating. Even the language of itself, the yeah. the terrain. Yeah. I love it when the language kind of corresponds, you know, on many different levels yeah. with with what's uh, what's going on. Claudia, can I ask what what then takes someone to raw milk? How does raw milk come into your to your whole approach in terms of how you counsel with people and treat people? Well. There, there are many things I can say, but one thing that happens is people. Well, if people come to me, they're not well, and a lot, you know, the, a lot of people today have digestive ailments. And what we've heard, and what I had used to think very much, is that milk was bad. Milk, and a lot of times, people do really well when they get off of milk. I hear that a lot. Yeah. I mean, people come yeah. to my shop all yeah. the time. I have a cheese shop, yeah. and they'll say, "I can't drink milk, or I don't eat cheese, yeah. or." So that's so. But I love it. But then, yeah. then they feel like they have to cheat. But so people get, you know, so the classic example, and this was something that happened to me early on, um, both in my practice and just observing in my personal life, is that um, asthma and eczema, um, the classic thing that so you hear so often in which people do really well is to get, is not have any dairy because that mm. could be a trigger for a lot of rashes or asthma attack. But actually, you know, when people as you know raw dairy as opposed to pasteurized dairy which everybody's having is very curative for asthma and there's um i remember meeting um back in 2002 this one man who went through great effort from from he was from harlem to go out to farms and to get raw dairy for his family and he was a man of not much financial means because his children and one child in particular was very ill with a very advanced asthma and he knew from growing up in the Dominican Republic that raw milk from good Mm. farms would cure them so I met these children and they were all these urban kids but just the peak of health they looked like they came off of a farm and then since then I found that there's many studies supporting that and I've used it in my practice over and over, you t- you avoid the pasteurized dairy because there's a lot of problems in digestion and the way it's produced. But the raw dairy is a whole other story for health and well-being for many people. Well, it's funny. Um, we haven't formally announced her, but my mom, Pam Saxelby, is yeah. also in the studio. She's a preschool teacher. Yeah. And um, what it, she just made a very interesting comment, which I'm going to ask her to repeat on the, on the mic here. Hi, I was just sharing with Ann that as a preschool teacher, I see a lot more children these days that have specific allergies to milk, and they ask that we not even serve that in school for them because mm-hmm. of what it causes in terms of uh, so many ailments. Yeah, I would actually agree, except I would make the exception, it's not all milk, it's pasteurized, modern, industrially produced milk. And basically, even organic milk, cows are given corn and soy mm. and that's not their natural food it's it's hard for humans to digest but very hard for cows to digest and so they get all these allergens and health problems themselves and that's why antibiotics are given to non-organic cows um, managed heck cows um, to help them deal with it just prophylactically but whatever it is they are of weakened vitality and aller and they have allergic reactions so that's one thing but also when you pasteurize and ultra pasteurize which is at a very high um, degree of heat, you um, the the molecular structure of the milk, you know, and especially in the, the proteins are affected, and you lose a lot of the benefits that milk was always um, sought out for. So you don't have the lactase enzyme that helps you digest the lactose, which is in raw milk. So there's a lot of people, you know, seeking who have 
lactose and problems, digestive problems, they all seek raw milk, or many, many people seek raw milk, and they have no problems. It's, they're very, it's very easy. And there's many other dynamics for that. But basically, the milk that we have is no longer this beautiful, you know, milk and hun- land of milk and honey that people sought out. It's, it's a food that you know, for the most part, should be avoided. Unfortunately, it's hard, it's hard, sad to say. <laughs> yeah. So that's that also goes. I mean, in that milk, it's yeah. the same idea. That terrain, that yeah. milieu interior. It's yeah. hard to say what all those different elements are working together. It's yeah. not as easy to isolate as yeah. one, you know, one element in it. But there is something kind of in, inherently good and kind of curative about raw milk. Yeah. So I have to play devil's advocate just for a second because, um, you know, then on the other side, there's a lot of controversy surrounding raw milk and people often cite raw milk or unfairly blame raw milk for, um, you know, being a dangerous food substance. So what would you, I don't know, what kind of uh, kind words could you say, uh, you know, to people who raise those sort of criticisms? Well, first, you want to, as you sort of started out our discussion together, is talk about the history. Um, there was never, you know, milk was a sacred food for many, many cultures, and there was never really a problem with it um, until recently in modern industrial, and um, and which you do need pasteurization for. So, um, but so so basically, there is this you. Um, idea that they associate the modern industrial problems with raw dairy with raw dairy with the traditional way of producing raw dairy on the farm having grass um, which is not the same thing but there's a lot of protective things in raw milk and it's a big threat to the existing milk dairy industry to have um, milk directly from dairy farms which mm-hmm. now they have this big um, industrial middlemen who pasteurize and process the milk but if we go back to having milk directly from farms, it's a whole nother structure of descent, you know, marketing milk. Absolutely. Well, and that's a very interesting thing, too, because in those dairy middlemen, not only do they control the logistics of supply, but they also control the price. Yeah. And the federal raw milk price has been steadily falling. I think it's at the same price now that it was in like the 70s. It's yeah. somewhere like eleven seventy-five for 100 pounds of milk. And um, so... With raw milk and with getting milk straight from the farm, it's also dangerous to those middlemen in that they lose the business and the people who are selling that milk yeah. are able to do so at a premium, which, you know, sort of, uh, you know, just completely bypasses them. Yeah. So the so actually the raw milk movement, which really is a revolution that um, Dave Gumford wrote his book about, but basically these these are now renewing the rural parts of our country where the local economies can now support farms and they can they can make a decent living as opposed to barely getting by and living and you know living and being very sub- desperate lives yeah. yeah and being subject to that that price which is set you know on high i think actually by the chicago board of trade i think that's who <laughs> gets to decide all that stuff so um, claudia can i ask one question sure. um so when you when people come now so tuesday i'm traveling Ann picks up five gallons of milk who is it that comes to you right now to get raw milk Ann? well no one comes to me okay. to get raw milk because we get it from, um different people get raw milk from different ways and they get it from farmers directly because okay. um, so basically um, people go through a lot of hoops to get raw milk today. 
if you were going to, well, so if you were going to counsel people, since there are all these myriad ways that people have devised to get raw milk, um, do you have any words of advice for people in New York City who are um, seeking this out? Yes. So as I started to say, there's lots of different ways people have to get, because there's different laws governing the sale of raw milk today. So in some states, you c- if you're in Connecticut, you can buy it in the stores. If you're in C- California and a few other states, it's just available in stores, certified raw milk. Um, here in New York and neighboring states, you can buy raw milk on the farm. So if you live off of, you know, around a dairy, you can just go to the farm and get it. It's not so easy for urban New Yorkers to do that. So And also urban places all around the country. And what basically what people are doing in a number of different ways to get raw dairy. Um, one is doing what they call cow shares, which is basically like a CSA for raw dairy. You buy a share in the cow and help maintain the cow. And in return, you get some of the product of the cow on a regular basis. Another thing that people do is they create their own little buying clubs where they band together and they go, they take turns going to the farm to buy the milk on the farm and bring it home for their club, for their group. And so that's, there's a, both of those things happening in the city. So that's really encouraging. And so um, would you be able to offer up any advice as, how, as to how people will get in touch with those groups? So the best way is to go to realmilk.com because that's, um, and that, and also to seek out your local chapter leader of the Weston Price Foundation, because the chapter leaders want to help provide access to raw milk, so they'll find out they'll know about different clubs and things like that. That's around. very helpful because yeah. I feel like for a lot of people there's so much interest, but just to get that first little insight into yeah. how to go about searching for it is is yeah. oftentimes you know it's tricky. It's like a speakeasy, you know. <laughs> it's like you have to know the code or else they won't let you in the front door. <laughs> it's become that. It's kind of crazy, you know. This is a food that people have lived on all their life. It has all this prohibition era kind of feeling around it, and um, um you know, so it's this kind of you know, kind of scary sometimes that they were doing this about food, but <laughs> exactly. But you know, it also gives it a sense of like daring do and you know <laughs> excitement that you know you don't get when you buy milk from the supermarket. So that's Sorry. a bonus. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today and for sharing your stories with us and also mm-hmm. your insights as to how people might go about um, learning more about raw milk for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we will see you again next week on cutting the curd on the heritage radio network. Thanks for tuning in. 